Welcome to the Wildscast. Today's guest is Rabbi Dr. Chaim Presby. He received his PhD in physics from Yeshiva University in 1996. He is a senior lecturer for Gateways and a distinguished member of the technical staff at Bell Laboratories for over 30 years, where he led research and development efforts in photonic applications. He holds over 200 patents and has published more than 180 papers in leading scientific journals, in addition to authoring the ABCs of Torah and Science and speaking for Gateways, Rabbi Dr. Presby holds seven Torah classes a week in his hometown of Highland Park, New Jersey. I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as we did. Okay, we are live. Welcome everyone to the Wildscast. I am thrilled to begin the third of our last of this three-part series uh, science and religion, friends or foes. I am joined uh, this afternoon uh, by an esteemed guest, Dr. Chaim Presby, also is Rabbi Dr. Chaim Presby, but I will be referring to him as Dr. Chaim uh, uh, Presby because that's the context of what we're discussing. Uh, he is a world-renowned scientist <clears throat> who specializes in photonics. And Dr. Presby received his PhD from the Belfort Graduate School of Science was a research scientist at Columbia University and assistant professor of physics at the Belfort Graduate School of Science. Dr. Presby was a distinguished member of the staff at Bell Laboratories, where he was manager of the Photonics Applications Research and Development Group and a research architect at TerraBeam Corporation, publishing more than 180 papers and one book and holding in excess of 200 U.S. and foreign patents which is incredibly, incredibly impressive. He is also a fellow of the Optical Society of America. And Rabbi Dr. Chaim Presby um, is a teacher of Torah and of Judaism, a regular lecturer on this topic of Torah and science at Gateways, another wonderful institution. And he is most notably the grandfather, most notably the grandfather of, of Nathaniel Schlackman. Nathaniel uh, and Carly are very, very active MGE couple who we have the zechut, the great honor of hosting every Shabbos at MGE and all of our classes. You must have a lot of nachas from them, Dr. Presby. Thank you for joining and welcome. My, my absolute pleasure. And thanks to uh, Nathaniel and Carly for recommending this. And, uh, and great thanks uh, to you for having me on. Well, it, it's, it is actually Nathaniel. It's an honor and a pleasure, uh, Dr. And, and, and it was actually Nathaniel and uh, Carly's idea. We were having Shabbat lunch. And they said, you know, you really should interview my grandfather about his new book, The ABCs of Science, uh, of Torah and Science. And he's a real authority on the issues of Torah and science. And then that got me thinking, why don't we open it up? And two weeks ago, I interviewed Rabbi uh, Dr. Natan Slifkin, whose area is zoology. And last week, uh, Dr. Gerald Schroeder, who's also a physicist, and uh, it's just been an incredible exploration of this important topic for me personally and for many of our students at the Manhattan Jewish Experience. So, Rabbi, Doctor, before we get into some of the apparent contradictions uh, between uh, Torah and science, tell us what drew you to the world of science and what value as a religious Jew and as a rabbi that you see in studying science? Okay, great. That, that's a great question, Rabbi Wilds. And uh, I think there's a great answer 
And for me, that answer really comes from the Rambam. The Rambam in his Mishnah Torah asks a very interesting question. We know that there is a mitzvah, there is a command of Abbas Hashem and Yeras Hashem of love of God and fear of God. Fear, fear really meaning being in awe of God and recognizing God's presence in the world. And the Rambam asks, how does one come to this? How can one fulfill those mitzvahs? They seem like very esoteric, very deep meaning mitzvahs of love and of awe. How is it fulfilled? And the Rambam in his Mishnah Torah says that uh, by studying the wonders of God's creation, an individual will arrive at an attainment of Avas Hashem and Yiras Hashem. And, uh, you know, the quote from his work is, is very, very uh, complete. And he tells us that by reflecting on the wonders of the universe, one will recognize the infinite wisdom of, uh, of the creator. And this leads one to an attachment and to a real like to get closer to this great being that's responsible for the existence of the universe. So my, my approach is one of a very deep feeling of uh, love of God and awe of God. And the more science that I do, the more science that I am involved in, the more that I feel God's presence in the world and the more that I see it. And in Beautiful. fact, the, the book that I wrote uh, is one to transmit that feeling, uh, you know, through seeing God in uh, many areas in the world. That's it. And, and I think you did very successfully communicate that sentiment in the book. You know, as, as a scientist, um, you know, Albert Einstein has this great quote. I actually used it in advertising our discussion today. Uh, he said that science without religion is lame. Religion without science is blind. Huh. Do you agree with that statement? Well, I agree with a lot of things that Einstein has done. Einstein was absolutely amazing. He really changed the world with uh, his God-given insight in, in several areas. And uh, just amazing. Uh, but accepting lots of the things that Einstein uh, has done, like relativity, uh, special and general relativity, like uh, studies in gravity and, and what have you, does not mean that we accept everything that Einstein mm -hmm. has said. Mm -hmm. So one has to really understand this statement. And uh, I would say that if uh, science includes a ruchnius uh, component, namely a spiritual component, then uh, science is uh, truly lame without it. And if that component comes from religion, then, uh, hey, how much more valuable science would be if it recognizes uh, that component? And the same in the other direction. In other words, that if uh, religion without science, in other words, if one does not use science, as we just discussed from the Rambam, in seeing God's presence in the world and recognizing that presence, then I feel that one is missing something in one's religious life. And mm -hmm. uh, so I would agree with that statement. Uh, again, conditional on uh, science accepting 
Ruchnius accepting spirituality and on us uh, seeing God's presence as a uh, statement of uh, of true belief in uh, in uh, in religion itself. Wow. Now, in your book, Rabbi Doctor, uh, the ABCs of Torah and Science. So you argue, like many do, that the complexity of the universe implies a deliberate and intelligent designer. So how do you respond to all those scientists who explain that we don't need God uh, to explain all of this? We have evolution, we have random mutation, natural selection, all of this complexity, it's, you know, it can be explained as happening all on its own. What's your response to that? My my response is that that is wishful thinking. And Mm -hmm. uh, I I approach evolution, I approach uh, this whole topic from a science perspective and my own uh, view on it is that there truly is no solid scientific evidence for evolution, uh, mutations and uh, are items that are always found to be deleterious, they're, they're harmful. In fact, if if one looks for evidence of mutations, one only has to look at what's been going on for the equivalent of billions of years of mutations that have been induced in fruit flies. Lots of universities, in fact, most universities have uh, fruit fly studies. That's they're they're easy to keep and what have you, and easy to induce mutations. And they've been mutated for the equivalent of billions of years. And you know what's come out of it? Out of all of those studies, the only thing that one has found has been sick fruit flies. One, one has found uh, components of their bodies uh, you know, strangely formed and what have you. There has never been found a positive mutation coming out of all of these irradiations of these uh, poor fruit flies. So the evidence just is not there that mutations can bring about all of these uh, amazing items that we see in in the world itself. Uh, you know, the clincher, the clincher for me, is uh, something that is within us ourselves. There, there's a verse in the book of Eov of Job. And Job said, from my own flesh, I see God. And I think that is so meaningful in in this context. If you look at every cell in our body, what does every cell have? Every cell has a nucleus. And what's inside that nucleus? Inside that nucleus are all of the instructions that give rise to the individual, that give rise to every living creature. And those instructions are contained in an amazing molecule called DNA. Mm-hmm. That DNA molecule is information rich. It contains several billion codes of, uh, of, uh, of information, and it's responsible for life itself uh, and the instructions that make life uh, what it is. Where did, that, where did that molecule come from? How did that molecule come about from an evolutionary perspective? That's a question that has that has science uh, dumbfounded. In fact, if you look at the response to the evolution of life here and its complexity, 
the uh, Nobel Prize winner, a Dr. Crick himself, who got the Nobel Prize for DNA. Right. Yeah, Francis said Crick. That, that you know what? It's absolutely impossible for life to have started here and for this complexity to have come about through this process of evolution. Well, how did it come about? And you know what Dr. Crick says? It came through something that he calls span panspermia, which means outer space, that we got all of this here through aliens. Uh, they brought it here to, to Earth. You know, that, that sort of avoids the whole issue because what would you ask uh, Dr. Crick? Where did the aliens get it from? And what would the answer be? Uh, other aliens. And, uh, you know, it's that famous statement of aliens all the way down. So that, that's no answer. But it does recognize the real impossibility of these items coming about, a information-rich structure, uh, the, our DNA coming through a process of evolution. There is absolutely no way that something like that can come through random mutations. And again, those mutations are generally deleterious and are harmful, and we've never seen any beneficial result uh, from them. So from just a science perspective, uh, there's a lot that's missing in this belief in everything coming about through uh, random mutations. So, so why is it, thank you so much, why is it so widely accepted though, uh, even, yeah. within, even within, you know, the other two speakers with whom I discussed do believe, uh, yes. uh, cl clearly believe in God and in Torah, and yes. all that, but but believe that God used yes. evolution in order to develop, yes. you know, the the complexity we see today. Why is it so? You know, yes. if if there's no positive evidence that that mutations can create such beauty and such positivity, because you're saying that mutations really, um, you know, are deleterious. They 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 create deleterious results, not Correct. positive ones generally. Then, then how is it so widely believed that evolution is the best explanation? Right. Let me, get, let me tell you a story that happened uh, with me. Uh, as you mentioned in the introduction, my field is photonics. Photonics mm -hmm. means light and my specialty. And, and by the way, doctor, just if I ever look down, it's because I'm typing notes because I want to remember. Uh, oh, that's fine. That, okay, that's go fine. on. Yeah. Okay, great. Yeah. Uh, so photonics is mm -hmm. everything dealing with light. And my own subspecialty within light is something called fiber optics, optical fibers mm -hmm. that I'm sure you have and, and your listeners uh, have, have heard of, right? It's the technology with which uh, communication now takes place around the world. Uh, uh, I, and it's an area where, as you mentioned, I, I have many, many, many patents. One of the uh, prime, a prime series of patents that I have is an invention within fiber optics of a way of getting light into the fiber. Uh, let me digress a little bit technically. Mm -hmm. I think it will be helpful. And, and that is a fiber is uh, just picture a hair. Uh, a fiber is just about the size of, of a human hair. And Picture your hair being made out of glass and now stretch that for a hundred, for a thousand, for thousands of miles. That's an optical fiber. How do you get light into that fiber? Well, that was a, a showstopper very early in the development of, uh, of fiber optics. And it became 
a goal of many countries that were working uh, that were working on it. Uh, after something like oh 20 years or so and yearly conferences, the Japanese were happy to announce that they were able to get uh, something like 40% of the light from a little laser into the fiber. And that, that's not quite good enough because you're throwing away 60% of your energy. We tackled the problem and within two weeks, we were able to get 100% of the light uh, into an optical fiber. It, it made quite a splash and we kept it a secret for two years till we got this into, <laughs> into product. Uh, and th that's another separate story that, that we can go into. But uh, how was it done? And the way it was done was with a very unique lens that was formed on the end of the optical fiber itself. It was a hyperbolic shape, which was able to collect all of the light from a laser into the fiber. Uh, so I was interested in seeing, hey, does something like this exist in nature? And sure enough, uh, I found there's something called a brittle starfish. I'm not sure if uh, that's very familiar, but starfish are familiar, right? It's a creature mm -hmm. sure. that, that has oh, uh, five appendages. It looks like a star, lives and crawls around on the bottom of the ocean. It turns out that those appendages are filled with eyes, amazing eyes. And those eyes actually have perfect vision. And what do those eyes consist of? Well, it turns out that the uh, brittle starfish is made out of calcite, which is a material that is uh, very uh, deleterious uh, for light. It, 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 it distorts light and what have you. So no one ever knew how one could make a perfect lens out of, uh, out of this material. It turns out that the starfish did, and that perfect lens is uh, of the shape of the lens that we had invented for an optical fiber. So I had an interest in the starfish and their lenses, and the group that discovered this lens on the starfish, it turned out, was at Bell Laboratories. And uh, in fact, uh, the head of that group had an office directly below mine. I went down to visit that individual and I said, hey, this is a great piece of work. And, uh, and the uh, researcher handed me a starfish that I was happy to hold. And I said, tell me, how did this starfish do it? How was it able to make such a perfect lens out of this calcite material? And I was asked, well, didn't you read my whole paper? I said, of course I did. And she said that it's in the last paragraph. And I said, oh, the paragraph that reads that the starfish, through the process of evolution, developed this uh, amazing, amazing lens. I said, so it was evolution that did it? She said, yes, it was evolution. I said, could you spell out the steps in that evolutionary process that made this lens? He said, no, I can't. I can't. I said, well, you have uh, five other co-authors. Do you think they can do it? She said, no, uh, don't waste your time asking them. They don't know either. I said, so how can you, as a noted researcher, claim that it was a process that you can't explain, that it just happened through something you call evolution, and you're not able to uh, describe that process? So she said, 
what's the option? What's the mm -hmm. option? What other explanation is there for this? And I said, well, I certainly have another explanation. And she said, yes, but we don't believe in that. <laughs> this is the attitude, Rabbi Wild, and that attitude is what's the option? That option is recognizing the infinite great wisdom of the creator of Akadish Barahu and accepting his presence and his involvement in the world. And that is not an option for scientists. Scientists want to explain everything in a natural materialistic way. And evolution is an answer, uh, is an answer to that. The option is just not in their way of thinking. And mm -hmm. I think this really brings home the, the, the whole, uh, you know, the whole, uh, item with regards to a uh, such a deep acceptance of evolution, even though the evidence for it just isn't there. And the, what the answer always is, what's the option? And we can't accept that option. And so how would you then, this is very helpful, and, and the starfish is a really good demonstration of, I guess, the scientific world's inability to just say, yeah. we, don't, we don't know, we can't explain it, we have to resort, not to something we can't explain, but something else maybe we can't explain, which yeah. is God. But um, my question is, is, I mean, so you don't believe, therefore, that God used evolution. In other I, words, so I, that it, it, yeah. Yeah. Now, my feeling is, why push on God a, a way, a method, which doesn't make scientific sense and say that he used this technique. If it was something which made scientific sense, then we could say, and I'd be the first to agree that, hey, that uh, here's a valid way that God did it. In other words, you know, very similar to Big Bang cosmology. In other words, uh, you know, how do we see the origin of the universe? How did this come about? And Big Bang cosmology has a lot going for it. But again, we can discuss that in more detail, you know, if we have time and you would like. Uh, so one could say, you know what? God used uh, this technique of Big Bang cosmology to uh, get the universe going. And that seems to be, as far as it looks now, a valid scientific theory. But to take a scientific theory that... Uh, does not look valid, and to say God used that is embarrassing. Why put God in that position to use something that does not make scientific sense? And there's just no, I say I'm not a scientist, so I can't speak intelligently to this, but there's no, in your opinion, positive scientific evidence that through, I heard this when I was younger, you know, yes. that a giraffe got its long neck because it, it, you know, it had to keep stretching in order to Ah. eventually get the leaves off the tree. It's a herbivore. Yes. It eats that, from leaves. And then over all of these periods of generations, the neck yes. just keeps getting longer and longer to survive. That, survival that, of the fittest. Rabbi, well, that is not evolution. That is something okay. called adaptation. And, mm -hmm. and, and that is creatures and living creatures adapting to their environment. And that is something that's indisputable. Adaptation is something that we see you know, all over the place. And, and that's very real. And that is something that is responsible for what one might call microevolution. Microevolution mm -hmm. is certainly correct. Microevolution 
are changes within a species. In other words, uh, there's all forms of dogs, but they're still dogs. There's all forms of, of creatures, but they're still that very same creature. You do not see a fruit fly, as we mentioned before, turning into a butterfly. In other words, they remain fruit flies. Uh, so adaptation is the ability of a species within the species to, uh, to turn into various uh, variations within that species. There are all sorts of dogs. There are all sorts of horses. There are all sorts of various creatures within the same family. But going from that, which is what Darwin did and said, well, you can now go with enough changes and make that creature into an entirely different species is uh, not microevolution, but that is macroevolution for which there is no evidence. In fact, the evidence that Darwin wanted to bring for this were something called the Darwin's finches, uh, these birds that lived uh, on, these, uh, on these islands, and their beaks were different sizes dependent on the food supply there. That was adapting. That was adaptation. That was not uh, evolution. So microevolution, again, changes within a species certainly exists. In fact, We've lost you, uh, Rabbi Wilds. Uh, um, hold on. Hold, no, no, I've, I've been, I've, I've been listening. Oh, okay, I think yeah, everyone, I think everyone, I think everyone okay. else has been able to hear you. Can you hear me? Okay. Okay. Fine. I can hear you. Not see you. So. Okay. Uh, you know. So, so what you're saying, just so I can understand, so adaptation, the idea that a creature within a species can adapt to one's environment, microevolution. But what you're referring to when you talk about that, you don't see any positive evidence to evolution. You're talking about macroevolution. Okay? And macroevolution is referring to the idea of random mutation of, um, let's say, natural selection. I always and thought that that was... selection. Right. And, right. and Tur- that... Turning, turning one species mm-hmm. into another. Right. That has, that has not been seen. Right. In fact, but it's so, micro- but it's so, but but it's so believed in your opinion simply yes. because there's no better, there's no better explanation. There is a better explanation, but one that is not accepted by the scientific world as a whole. Right. That better explanation is uh, is right in our hands, and that better explanation is given uh, by Hakadosh Baruch Hu in the Torah and is given. Uh, for centuries and centuries in uh, our Torah Shabbat that better explanation is God's presence, God's existence, and God's uh, control of the world and God's involvement in the world. I hear you. I hear you. And um, all right, let's get back here then. So, so that's basically, in your opinion, what you think other physicists or scientists who are agnostics or atheists are missing. Well, or understanding differently. Oh, absolutely. It, it, it's very interesting. I don't know if you, you've heard, there was a uh, a rabbi, uh, Eliyahu Meir Block. He was the founder of the Telzi Yeshiva in Cleveland. Mm-hmm. And he had some, a very interesting insight uh, based on a verse in, in Tehillim, a verse in Psalms. That, that verse says the following. It's in our prayers. Mm-hmm. Hashem, How wonderful are your deeds, God. How profound are your thoughts. 
the next verse says, Ish barlo yeda, a fool will not understand it. Nor will an ignorant individual comprehend this. Rabbi Block said that even, even more amazing than God's uh, deeds in nature and God's workings in the universe is the second part of this, which is that someone can see it and still not see God's presence in it. In other words, that man can observe, can behold the magnificence of God's handiwork and yet deny his existence. That is even more amazing than God's handiwork. In other words, that <laughs> it just is so clear that uh, God's hand is there and yet one struggles to provide just so excuses and stories as to how these uh, items came about when uh, when the answer is very, very clear. And, and so let's shift a little. What, what then is, I mean, how well do you believe the world actually is then? <laughs> age of the universe, that, that's, that's a big story. If someone would ask me, Dr. Presby, what's the age of the universe? I would say it's 5,782 years plus six God days of creation. Mm -hmm. what are those what, you... what are those six god days of creation we have absolutely no idea and and what do i mean by that could they be six normal days yes they can can they be uh millions or billions of years uh, yes they can we don't know and i think this is a very fundamental point uh, that i'd like to make and that is something that the ramban nachmanides makes in his introduction to his commentary to the Torah. And uh, let me quote from the Ramban because it is so very important. Uh, mm -hmm. Okay, if I use the Hebrew and translate, or please, just please, please. No, 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 please go for it. Okay, good. So let me read from the Ramban. He says the following Maseberatius, uh, and I'll translate as I go. Maseberatius, the process of creation, sowed amok, is a profound mystery. Eno muvan min hamikros, which cannot be understood from the verses. Veloyi vada alburav, and it cannot be clearly known. Elamipi hakabala, only from a tradition. Ad Moshe Rabbeinu mipi hagvura, that traces back to Moshe Rabbeinu, who received it from the mouth of the Almighty. The Yodav. And those who know it are obligated to conceal it. This is the Ramban. What's the Ramban telling us? We don't know a word in the chapter of creation. And so taking it literally and saying, oh, here's what it says, uh, is just not correct. We just don't know. It is something that is called Maseberatius, the works of creation, and it's a mystery. It's a profound mystery. And, uh, and it's, uh, it's, that, uh, it's that mystery that uh, we struggle with and we are not privileged to fully uh, understand. Can we get a glimpse of some items? Yes, but we just don't know if those items are correct or not. And that applies to the age of the universe. What is it? And how can it be the 5782 and uh, 
and uh, six, uh, seven real days as, as we know them. We don't know. We don't know. And how could it be billions of years? Again, we don't know. There, there is a, another possibility, and I should mention that. It was the possibility that I received from my mentor, a Rav Pesin uh, Zatzal, an absolute brilliant uh, Torah scholar. Uh, he was a Rav in Muncie. And uh, Rav Pesin uh, said that the following is probably the most uh, satisfactory resolution of this. And that's the following. He held that creation took place in a spiritual state, that the world was created spiritually. Spiritual items uh, are what's described in the Torah. And the world only became physical with the hate, with the transgression, with the sin of Adam. That sin transformed the world from its ruchnius, from its spiritual state into a physical state. And Rav Pesin asks, what is the transformation equation for one day? In other words, the one day that's mentioned in the chapter of creation was truly one day, but one spiritual day. When that got converted into physical days, how many physical days go into one spiritual day? And that is a possibility that we're seeing in terms of the age of the universe. Again, the bottom line is we do not know. And and just just going back to what uh, your your teacher of Pessin suggested that creation takes place in a spiritual state and then only becomes physically tra- you know transformed into a physical yes. you know world as we know it when Adam sins. So then when the Torah is describing day one, yes. day two, day three, day four, according to Rav Pesin, those, those all happened after? That's describing what happened after Adam sinned? No, no, no. Those are describing a spiritual state. In other words, we don't e- Even though it's describing trees and plants. Correct. It's just... Yeah, they're spiritual trees. There's a spiritual sun. There's spiritual vegetation. And they all got transformed into the physical state that we now see with the chait of, of Adam. Correct. Mm-hmm. But and as far as, yeah, yeah. But, but as far as you're concerned, we don't really know. In other words, it could have been 24 hour days. You're Correct. saying Correct. it could have been 24 hours a days. You're not, because you're not impressed at all with evolution, macro evolution. I learned uh-huh. that um, you, you, in other words, you don't see the need to fit, you know, those those six days plus Shabbat into, you know, billions of years. Correct. Uh, because the world, because that's that's just based on the evolutionary sort of dating of the universe. But what would you say to, you know, we do have um, sediment, you know, in certain lakes, and we have rings on certain sure. trees. Absolutely. That 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 make the world older than five thousand seven hundred eighty-two. Sure. I mean, yes. uh, and, and we have and fossils. The, we have dinosaur fossils. Sure. You know, and the Talmud addresses itself uh, to mm-hmm. that in two places. And the Talmud tells us that the world was created in a finished state. How old was uh-huh. Adam? How old was Adam when he was created? How right, many... he was created as an adult. He was created Absolutely. as an adult. Absolutely, he was created as an adult. How many rings were there in those trees that were created? How many? And uh, again, uh, how 
where was that light that was created from the distant galaxies when they were created? They were on the way here to planet Earth. In other words, that the universe was created fully formed and fully completed. And that is what we're observing. We're observing a universe that looks old, but was created in that state. And is there, uh, there, is there any Torah on that? Meaning, if that, if that, that would be such a, I would imagine that would invite so much commentary and discussion amongst our sages because, um, you know, well, it, it, it would seem to go against what, you know, we would all think the way things would, that for Hashem to purposely create something that looks much older than in actual. Well, again, that, that is the statement that we find in the Talmud itself. It appears in two places in the Talmud that call uh, habria, that all of creation, uh, the komasan, were created in their full, final, finished state. So it's a statement that the Talmud brings. And, uh, and let me again bring a story that happened uh, with me. Unfortunately, ev uh, evolutionists and uh, say that the eye is a perfect example of God's non-existence. Looking at the eye, one does not see the presence of a designer. Why? Because the eye is designed backwards. And no intelligent designer would do that. Now, what does that mean? It's designed backwards. I think you're aware that the front of the eye has a lens and the back of the eye has a retina. In the retina are rods and cones that receive the light and then send electrical signals to the brain to interpret that image. The rods and cones are pointed backwards in the retina. They are not facing the front of the eye. They are not facing the lens. That light that comes in through the lens has to pass through layers of cells, processing cells, till it gets to the tip of the rods and cones to activate them. Mm -hmm. And scientists say, that's a terrible design. If we were designing the eye, we would make the rods and cones face forward. The fact that it faces backward means that we have a blind spot in the eye, a place where the optic nerve has to go through the retina. That would not be the case if the rods and cones were facing forward. Mm -hmm. This certainly shows that the eye was an accident and not a design of an intelligent creator. Mm -hmm. th th mm -hmm. This bothered me enormously. And I, uh, another long story, but we'll skip that. I met a uh, retinal specialist, mm -hmm. and he was in touch with a group at the Miami Eye Institute to look into this item, and they came out with a study that showed that the eye absolutely has to be the way it is, otherwise it would not work at all. In other words, that the rods and cones facing back and facing an epithelium layer is exactly what is needed for the eye to operate. Why is that the case? Well, several reasons. One reason is that if they face the way that scientists say they should be facing, the rods and cones are, and are always shedding cells. Cells die, and those cells would fill the retinal fluid mm. with, uh, with schmutz, <laughs> and it, it, we would not be able to see very, very quickly. The fact that they're facing backward means that those dead cells get absorbed by this layer in back of the retina, 
and it preserves our preserves our sight and other reasons as well. In other words, that the fact that it's in the back gets rid of interference, gets rid of scattering from uh, from the rods and cones. That again, it's absorbed in this back layer, and that back layer also serves as the energy source. So just the opposite. The eye would not work if it was designed the way that scientists say it should have been designed. And that the proof of God's design in doing it this way is nothing but a marvelous display of intelligent design of the eye itself. So I think you know, it just goes and it just goes to show God's presence in the eye, and uh, one sees that so very, very clearly. Literally sees it clearly. Thank yes, you. Yes, exactly. Um, so, so just to clarify for myself, for our listeners, because you don't subscribe to the idea of evolution, um, the macro idea of evolution. macro evolution, you, you do believe in adaptability within species. Correct. But the idea, you don't believe that the eye developed that god did that you know because this is kind of what dr schroeder i think i don't want to mischaracterize what he was saying you know, this is the standard feeling of scientists with regards to eye development you find various types of eyes that exist in various creatures and now you put them all together and and you come up with a human eye but again our eye is so amazingly complex just take you know the first step that evolutionists say came into the design of the eye. Take a light-sensitive spot. Do you know what it takes to make a light-sensitive spot? It takes a phenomenally complex uh, way of a photon of light to come in and get transformed into a flow of uh, electrons. And that's done in a very complex way of rearranging the structure of a retinal molecule. There's nothing that's a simple light spot. In other words, just that point alone shows yeah. phenomenal intelligent design in the first stage in, in seeing. And the fact that there are various types of eyes does not mean that, that you could put them all together and get the human eye. The human eye has to be put together in a way where it all works uh, perfectly, perfectly in unison with all of its parts. Just take the rods, just take the cones. Science has recognized that the, uh, that the rods are absolutely phenomenal. They are sensitive to a single photon of light, something that takes enormous uh, technology to do in a, uh, in a uh, technological way with uh, electronics. And our eye has done it, has made itself Akadosh Baruch Hu has made it sensitive mm -hmm. to single photons. That's unreal. And none of this has come about, you know, just by accidental uh, mutations. It's, it's just, uh, just impossible. And, and, and even if, let's say, someone discovered in 10 years from now that the world is not 14 billion, the universe is not 14 billion um, years old, like cosmologists believe the world is today, and they, they, they discovered it's 50 billion years old yeah that 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 wouldn't change anything would it anything and it wouldn't change me at all once upon a time there was a the lord lord kelvin he's responsible for the kelvin temperature scale a very famous noted scientist he believed that the world was uh on the order of 10 to 50 million years old 
And he was supported by geologists. He was supported by biologists. He was supported by all of the scientists of his age. And you know what? He was wrong. And uh, if you would have asked an intelligent layman at the time, how old is the world? They all would have said, well, Kelvin and everybody, all the scientists say it's uh, between 10 and 50 million years old. That must be right. They were dead wrong because they didn't realize the energy source of the sun and what kept uh, the earth warm as well. Mm -hmm. So one has to be so careful to pick up things and say, here's what science says. It has to be right. Of course, science is right in many, many things. But there are many, many things that one has to be selective and cautious uh, about. And and so it, so the the idea of having again I just want to clarify and sure. I know you already answered it the idea of having let's say more time for all, for for random mutation natural selection to do its magic that yes. it wouldn't it wouldn't change anything because Nothing. why because that time would be on the order of infinity to do anything in other words with infinite time you would think that anything could happen but even with infinite time this process is not going to do it. And, and someone as brilliant as Stephen Hawking, okay, yes. who who uh, um, invoked the the famous uh, you know m monkey theory well, that if you have enough monkeys hammering on yeah. typewriters for not, uh, eventually a Shakespearean sonnet will right. Be. That that is G A R B A G E. Those numbers <laughs> those numbers do not work out at all. Stephen Hawking is famous for saying you don't need God. Just give me gravity and I'll give you the universe. What would you ask Stephen? Hey, Stephen, where'd you get gravity from? Right. And uh, and no way, gravity just doesn't do it alone. Stephen now knows better. He's in a spot where he recognizes uh, the truth and <laughs> uh, the errors of his thinking. But uh, no way. Well, I'm glad you clarified that then, because your your position is becoming clear. Um, so so this whole idea, by the way, just. Uh, Two other points. So sure. when I had asked Rabbi Slifkin about reconciling the Torah's description of the first six days of creation with modern-day evolutionary theory, so he yeah. didn't like the explanation that each of the first days of creation has to be more than 24 hours, maybe even yeah. billions of years, because we're still left with a sequence problem, because the, well, way, the way that evolution and the Torah records creations are different. So let me just finish the point. So he then quoted the Rabag, a great... Yeah commentary, the Ralbag, who said that the Torah mentions plants before the sun to demote the sun from its godlike status, and so many people worship the sun, and, and I'm getting to the question that, that the, the Torah ultimately is not a book of science. The Torah is a book of values, and it's trying to teach us certain values not to worship the sun, but, but those things that the Torah says that seem to touch on science, we're not really supposed to learn science from that. What's now, your feeling about that? My, my point, I would say the following. We know the Medrash brings, it's a Zohar as well, that God used the Torah as the blueprint for the universe. It's everything, absolutely everything in the universe is contained in the Torah. It's a matter of how do we extract it from the Torah. We're not privileged to it. And as I mentioned, the Ramban tells us that we are not able ourselves unless we have a tradition to extract it from the words of, uh, of the chapters of Genesis. We just, we just can't do that. So to take it so simply and say, this was created before that, and that was created before this, as the words seem to imply, 
according to that opinion of the Ramban, is just not correct. We don't. We just don't know. Not only that, but on that point of sequence, uh, I would quote Rashi. Rashi brings the Gemara that tells us that there's a contradiction within the verses of the Torah itself. Mm-hmm. It says that vegetation uh, appeared, and then later it says that there was no vegetation till man came. And we know the quote of Rashi, that the vegetation was sub-earth, did not emerge till man came and realized the value of rain and prayed for rain, and that had the vegetation uh, come out. So there is no no contradiction there with regards to the sun not being there and the vegetation coming. It wasn't there. It wasn't on the surface of the earth, according to that Gemara, as, mm-hmm. as Rashi brings. So I don't see that that point as, as an issue. But again, I feel that the major point there is not to take items and in a way of, hey, I know this is what it says, and therefore this is what it means. Right. Again, and, and, and this is more of a theological question. I'll ask you to put your rabbi hat on and not the scientific hat. But so do you believe that the to- that if we had access, if we had the wisdom, let's say of Arashi or Ramban, you know, on steroids, <laughs> we would be able to find science in the Torah? A hundred percent. A hundred percent. And that's something that Shlomo HaMelech was able to do and something that Moshe Rabbeinu was able to do. Let, let me let, let me bring one example of that, and not just from, from the Torah, but from the Talmud. And uh, I, I think it's so important, you know, because people say, oh, that's old, that's ancient, what did they know? And we know so much more now. There are items in the Talmud that science is just discovering. And I, let me just bring one example please, of please. that in the area of, of cosmology. There's a verse in the prophet Isaiah, Yeshayahu, and that verse says, after the destruction of the temple, Klal Yisrael, the Jewish people, complained to God and said, Vatomer Tzion Azavani Hashem. God, you abandoned us. You left us. Look what you did. And God responds, how can you say that? Look up at the heavens. This is a Talmud in Brachos, uh, Lamed Beis, Lamed Beis, 32b. Mm-hmm. Uh, how can you say that, God says? Look up at the stars that I created. And then the Talmud goes through a, a calculation of the number of stars that one can see in, uh, in the heavens. And the, the Talmud says, God says, I created 12 constellations, and each constellation I created so many and so many divisions, each division, so many brigades, each brigade, so many. And it goes through a whole series of items. When I was giving shear in, in this Talmud, I worked through those numbers. At the end, it says, and God says, this, this, and I created them all for you. I know each one. How can you say I've abandoned you? You know what that number turns out to be for those number of stars? 1.06434 times 10 to the 18th. Does 10 to the 18th mean anything? <laughs> that number is phenomenal, phenomenal. If you, let me just give you a feel for big numbers. If you ask, what's the total number of leaves on all of the trees in the United States? You know what that number would be? <clears throat> Less than 10 to the 15th. 10 to the 18th is beyond, beyond. is an enormous, enormous, enormous number. And what are you talking about? 
how could the sages of the Talmud 2,000 years ago have brought that number? The next day, I, I worked together with uh, Arno Penzias and Bob Wilson, who mm -hmm. uh, were the discoverers of the Big Bang and, mm -hmm. and, and got the Nobel Prize for it. Mm -hmm. but you know what? I, I'm having a call. I, I have a doctor appointment. And the doctor's oh. Let me just take that for sure, a second. Sure, sure, please. We can and, mute, you can mute yourself. Yes. Hi, it's Barbara. He's running a little behind, so I can just call you when he's ready for you guys. Okay, very good. Thanks, let Barbara. Me just, let me just screen you while you're on the phone. Both of you have been fully vaccinated had your booster. Correct. And as far as you know, have you been around anybody with COVID? No, correct. And neither of you is having any COVID symptoms? Correct. Wait, I'll call you when he's ready for you. Very good. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. <laughs> Well, listen, okay. this, is our, this is our fault because it was our technical glitch that yeah, kept I know. us going so yeah, long. So yeah, I appreciate that. We have the doctor appointment coming sure, up. Sure, sure. Thank you. Uh, so uh, here is a time when if one looked at the heavens a few 2,000 years ago, one could count by eye maybe, maybe 1,000 stars, maybe 2,000 stars with good vision. And here the sages of the Talmud are saying, you know how many? There are 10 to the 18th. That's crazy. Wow. What did they know? I told you that the sages don't know anything. <laughs> so, well, you know, next, the, pro the problem then, is. One second. That yeah. next day, I saw Bob Wilson, who got the Nobel Prize for the Big Bang. And I said, Bob, tell me, how many stars are there in the observable universe? Bob said, Herman, that's how I'm called the Bell Labs. Herman, it's a famous number, it's 10 to the 18th. I said, Bob, you're close. It's 1.06434 times 10 to the 18th. Now, that's the Talmud. And our sages had that by Kabbalah, by a tradition, that this is the number of what they defined as the observable universe. Is that amazing or is that amazing? It's unbelievable. It's, it's, it's unbelievable. Now, I, I, I'm, I'm going to play devil's advocate for a minute. Do that in one second. <laughs> now it's Dr. Gladder's office. Uh, they're running late. They'll call when they're ready for it. Okay, I'm with um, you. No, the devil's advocate is that, you know, uh, there are other, of course, passages in the Talmud of medicinal um, suggestions made by different sages, which we would laugh at today. We would say uh, that. No I'm... laughing. They are no laughing matter. And you'd like to know how do we take those? Yeah. There, there are two ways. One way is we have no idea what those prescriptions are. We don't know what those materials were, how to prepare those materials, how to mix them, how to obtain them, mm -hmm. and what have you. We just have no idea of what they're telling us. No one's seen it. No one has made those concoctions. We just don't know. That's one. Two, our sages have told us, and there is the idea of nishtana hateva, which means that nature has changed. What worked at one period of time does not work now. And uh, those were items that may have worked, even if we knew what they were, that may have worked at that period of time. They, they're not effective now, mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. they're not to be used now. Wow. Okay. All right, let me move on to one last area. I really appreciate it. I know you have to go soon. I, I thank you so much for your time and your your brilliant wisdom here, Rabbi, well, Doctor. That, that's um, debatable. <laughs> um, so how do you reconcile? Again, um, you're not going to have to reconcile because you don't subscribe to macroevolution, but uh, so many people struggle with what the Torah says about how man was created. Uh, right? God, for, ma, God created man from the dust of the earth, and God blew into his nostrils the breath of life. So both... Rabbi Dr. Slifkin and Dr. Schroeder did not seem to find anything in the Torah which contradicted the idea proposed by evolution 
because the Torah just says that God took Adam from the dust of the ground, which means that God could have taken any one of those living beings that eventually formed yes. into a human being, and at some point decided to take one of those things and blow a soul into him, creating a man. What If you can just speak to this. I would like to speak to that because I do not agree with that at all. Mm -hmm. And for that, I, I would quote uh, Rob Soloveitchik, and uh, his opinion is brought uh, authoritatively by Rabbi, his uh, nephew, Rabbi Meiselman, in, mm -hmm. in his book uh, mm -hmm. of, uh, Torah, of Torah in Science, and uh, Torah Chazal in Science. And uh, let, let me quote from the book. Uh, he, he says the following, Mori the Rebbe Zatzal totally rejected the conception of man implicit in evolution. As a result, he would not even consider the evolutionary count of human origins. God would never have endowed a being that was not a unique creation with the Tselem Elohim, with a divine image. Nor would he consider reading Adam's creation allegorically in order to preserve the Torah's conception while relinquishing insistence upon a separate creation. He says that the radical difference between man and the rest of the animal kingdom necessitated, in his view, a separate mm -hmm. creation. Uh -huh. A hairless anthropod descended from animal ancestors could never be the bearer of the Tselemelokim. An entirely new creation was required. This conviction was fundamental to his thinking. I hold like Rav Soloveitchik and... Uh, see a special creation for Adam and Chava, not one of coming from existing animals. Fascinating. So the only, so just to clarify what Rav Salvechik is teaching, according yes. to Rav Meiselman, is that the difference between a man and animal is so dramatic, is so important Correct. and significant that it necessitated an entirely different physical being in which I'm just typing this out, in which God would breathe the soul. Into, correct. Um, God would breathe the soul. God, God would give it Salamelokim, correct. Right. And, and, and the idea, even though you could argue that, you know, uh, I'm studying the Tanya now with my students, and the Tanya's belief that the soul is made up of the lowest part of the soul, the nefesh has got the nefesh behemoth, the nefesh elokit, the animal correct. soul, and then the godly soul. And the animal soul, we... You know, according to the Balatanya, animates even animals. Correct. So, that, right now, the, the animal soul is what keeps us alive or keeps right. our body functioning. Exactly. It's, it's the physical aspect of that lowest level of uh, of the neshama. But the neshama, as you know, uh, you know from the Tanya, has various other levels and some very, very high levels, indeed some high levels. And they are contained only in a unique creation of, uh, of God. And that was Adam and Chava. And, and and if I was a, if I was an evolutionary biologist talking to you, and I said, what would you say? How would you respond? We, the, the, whatever evidence there is that that we that mankind shares sort of this ape-like creature as an ancestor, what what would you say back? Because I don't know what the proof is. I'm not main, I'm not pretending to. Uh, there's lots of uh, interesting things. We share so much common DNA. You know, and, and and what have you, but uh, again, that, that doesn't mean anything because that DNA for our structure and for the animal structure has lots and lots of similarities. 
it's the differences that are so important that you know that that's there uh, that's there between us. Uh, uh, you know, I, I would say, hey, hey, did you ever speak to that uh, that chimp? Did you ever speak to that gorilla? Did you ever say shalom aleichem? Did you ever say good Shabbos? And what was what would the gorilla answer? The girl would beat its chest and answer, oh, 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 they can't talk. Say something. Say something. How come we can talk? How come we're the only creature that's able to talk? You know why? Because that's this unique nature of Tzelem the, uh The creation of man, by Yehibo, as, uh, as we know, Unkus tells us, Ruach Memalala, that man was a nefesh chaya, a speaking creature, is unique to us. And physically and uh, brain-wise and what have you, uh, there was a design for that capability. There is no connection between us and those previous creatures. And that couldn't have all changed, again, just playing along here, that couldn't have all changed when God, that God took this, this, this animal, which turned into a humanoid yeah. or whatever you want to call it, and then at some point, breathe into mankind the soul, endowing man with this capability of speech, this capability of reasoning, this capability of consciousness, of all the things yeah. that, that people have that animals don't. Correct. Why is it so inconceivable? I mean, uh, this is... Because, because these other creatures were just animals. They were animals. They, they were not, they were not uh, beings that were fit for this Salamelokin that mm -hmm. required a... Unworthy, unworthy, in your opinion. Absolutely, they were they were walking hairless, featherless anthropods. Wait, and the walking featherless anthropods are the ones that I just want to get that clear. Are the yes. ones that we can believe Hashem took to create no. a person? No, absolutely not. Okay, because when you said hairless, when you said hairless, no, you said hairless. It made me. It got me all. Uh, no, that, that was uh, who was it? Uh, someone's definition of uh, of man: a, a hairless walking anthropod. Uh, no, it, it required a special creation, according to Rav Soloveitchik, of Adam and of Chava, uh, from from whom we've descended. And there's no, there's no in your mind any kind of scientific evidence or anything in the natural world for a soul. Absolutely, there certainly is. Science doesn't recognize it, right? But science is, uh, you know, is stymied by lots of items. For example, where's where's consciousness? Where's mm -hmm. where's the definition of me? Where do I know that I am I? Where does that reside? Where is life? What makes life? What makes a creature alive? In other words, there are items that science uh, truly does not know and points to a lot more than just our physical structure. Beautiful. Um, tell, tell me, just uh, to bring this to a close, how do you envision the, the future of science and technology? You've developed a, a lot of patents in, 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 the, in this area of um, photonics. Yeah. And how do you envision the future of science, technology, and Torah in the next, I don't know, 50 I, to 100 I re years? I really see. I really see. It took... It took uh, Oh, it took a few thousand years for science to come to the first two words of the Torah. What are the first two words of the Torah? Voracious Bara. Till Big Bang Techno till Big Bang cosmology, 
scientists thought that the world was uh, eternal, the steady state of the universe. It was always here. This was probably the biggest conflict that ever existed in science and Torah. Someone would say, hey, what do you mean the universe was created? It always, it always was here. How can you picture this universe of trillions of galaxies and billions and billions and billions of stars ever having been created? No way. It was always here. And that was a real problem for committed Jews. But Big Bang Cosmology said, you know what? It came about at some finite time in the past. It was, it was there just as we always believed. So it took a few thousand years for science to come to the first two words. You know what we're working on now, Rabbi Wilds? The third word. What's that third word? Hello, Kim. Hello, Kim. <laughs> and you know what? We'll get there. We'll get Amen. There. Amen. We'll get there. Amen. That is, this has been such uh, a zechut and a merit for me, Rabbi Presby, Dr. Presby, to hear your incredible wisdom and your confidence um, in, in saying, listen, you got to show me better evidence for evolution or else I cannot accept it, especially if it seems to be running counter. You know, what you are, you are different than your two predecessors on this podcast in the sense that they feel somewhat bounded by, by evolution because they, they subscribe to even macro evolution, maybe, maybe not every aspect of it, but enough to, to compel them to really try to work things and reconcile out. You, You don't have that, you know, you know what you reminded me, if you don't mind me saying, um, and this is probably the greatest compliment, is the great Rambam, Maimonides himself, who considered Aristotle intellectually his, his teacher. Um, Aristotle, I think, subscribed to the eternity of the universe. Yes. He didn't believe, right? And But that was something that the Rambam could never accept, right? Because it went against the Torah. And, right. and um and it's an amazing thing because Aristotle, at least according to modern science, with, as you say, Big Bang cosmology, has been disproven. There is a beginning. Yep. Baraz, you said. Correct. And, uh, and the Rambam held, held firm. And I think that's what you're doing. You're holding firm until the world comes to the conclusion of no, more well, wisdom of the Torah. Breshit Baraz Lokim. It'll yeah. get there. It'll get there. You know what? Do you, do you want to conclude with a, with a story on please, this? Please, please. And that, that relates to what I mentioned before about this uh, way of getting light into a fiber. Uh, yeah, yeah, that was fascinating. Where, where did that come from? In fact, uh, when we revealed this after holding it uh, private for two years, I got called from some little publications like the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal you know, <laughs> to write this up. And then I got called from the American Physical Society saying, Dr. Presby, we'd like to do an interview. And we only have one question. Can we come? And I said, of course. So they came. What's your question? Where did you ever get the idea to get all of the light into a fiber? People have been trying for 10, 20 years and they haven't done it. Where did you get the idea? I said, I will tell you on one condition that you write it up exactly as I tell you. And they said, of course, we're scientists like you. Uh, We'll write it up. Where did you get the idea? I said, what if I told you it came from heaven. It came from God. Rabbi Wild, I cannot make the faces that I saw in my office that day. That, <laughs> it, it was like, uh, and, and the response was, Dr. Presby, stop kidding around. Where did you get the idea? I said, I told you where I got the idea. Will you write it up? They said, no way. You have a uh, world reputation. 
if you we ever did that, people would think you're a nut, you're a crackpot, <laughs> and they'd have nothing to do with you again. It's for your own good. We're not going to write it up that way. I said, well, interview is over. Right. Now, why did I why did I tell them that? Because it's a pasuk in the Torah. In Devarim, it says, Ki hua no koach And if you look at Unkus there, God gives you the strength. Unkus says, God gives you the ideas to be successful. That idea, good ideas, came from heaven. That's where ideas come from. Even to that point of God being behind ideas is something that uh, the world cannot accept. The world of science can't accept. And they have to see things from their own materialistic uh, you know, way. But uh, we firmly believe that what? That even that God is even behind ideas. And you know what? And the world will come to that when they come to that third word and see God's presence in the world and presence in all that uh, occurs in the world and all that the world has to uh, come to and, and provide for us. You know, it's a lesson that uh, that we're now being shown and we're being shown to the nth degree. We haven't discussed this and it's not for this, uh, you know, for, for this podcast, but certainly, you know, with what we've been going through with the pandemic and all of the items of it, it is certainly a clear message and a clear, uh, you know, uh, a clear demonstration of just this point of Kaddish Baruch Hu being there and being in control of all. Beautiful. Thank you. I cannot think of a more appropriate way of us concluding not only our conversation, but this three-part series of being able to truly see Hashem in the natural order of things. Thank you Absolutely. for thank Absolutely. you for enabling us to do this. Thank you so much for your time. I apologize for the technological um, issues sure. that we were having, but I think we got an amazing, amazing conversation and some and extraordinary wisdom. Anybody listening, please make sure you get the ABCs of Torah and science. Oh, thank you. Uh, elucidating from a Torah perspective the opportunities and challenges of our scientific age. Rabbi Dr. Chaim Presby, thank you so much and continued nachos from Nathaniel and Carly, from the rest of your beautiful Amen. family. And thank you so much for having me on and the opportunity to uh, express these uh, these truths. Beautiful. Thank you thank so you. much. Take care. All the best. Bye thank bye you for your time. We hope you enjoyed this episode of The Wilds Cast. Subscribe to our show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or your favorite podcast app. If you haven't already, please leave us a review in the Apple Podcast Store. It only takes a minute, and when you do it, it helps others discover the show. Music from today's episode comes courtesy of Yosef Wilds. For more information about the Manhattan Jewish Experience, please visit our website at jewishexperience.org or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks again for joining us.